What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're hearing from chef, restaurateur and writer Yotam Otalengi. This interview was first heard on our series How I Found My Voice in 2021. Here's Yotam in conversation with our host, Samira Ahmed. We used to go and buy all the mamuls and the Palestinian cakes. We used to go and have takeaway hummus and labne. For me, my love of food is actually formed in the streets of Jerusalem. Sami and I always say we're way more famous all over the world apart from the Middle East. We are kind of non-events there. I think it is perhaps almost too difficult to stomach this partnership in the Middle East. Gay parenting was something that wasn't really talked about that much. I'm an out gay man, but there are certain places where I don't go. Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice Live. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? So my guest today is an ultimate performer in a way. He's a restaurateur, a chef and a writer, Yotam Otolengi. Together with his Palestinian business partner, Chef Sami Samimi, he's absolutely transformed British attitudes to food with their wonderful fusion cooking, which draws on his mixed German, Jewish and Italian heritage, growing up Israeli in Jerusalem in the 1970s and 80s, helping introduce many of us to such transformative ingredients as sumac and pomegranate molasses and za'atar. First with his restaurants and his delis, but also with a series of best-selling books, including Jerusalem and Simple and his column in the Guardian newspaper. Yotam, welcome to How I Found My Voice. Thank you. Thank you, Samira. What a wonderful introduction. I want to take you back, Yotam, to Jerusalem in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> I used to have a King James Bible with photographs of Jerusalem taken in the early 70s. I was particularly fascinated by what it must have been like. Your parents are academics, your father's a university professor, your mother was a teacher who was also part of the education ministry. Tell me about what kind of home you were growing up in. Jerusalem in the 70s and the 80s was a slightly more 
peaceful place in the sense that the tensions between the Muslims and Jews were more under the carpet. They were kind of slightly hidden because it was the whole business of 1967 war in which Israel occupied Eastern Jerusalem was a very recent development. And the animosity that kind of erupted later has not yet, that genie hasn't come out of the bottle yet. So it was actually a very peaceful place. I remember going out with my father and my younger brother. We went um, cycling to Jericho, down the hill from Jerusalem, and then sitting down for a very peaceful meal underneath a tree and having incredible kebabs and hummus and all the wonderful Palestinian food that was on offer. And in Jericho, you really smell um, the orange blossom because oranges, the oranges of Jericho are particularly famous. So it was that kind of sense of orange blossom and a wonderful food. It was all very evocative. And Jerusalem is a beautiful city. It's sensual, it's historic, it's, it's very spiritual. And with that, there is a good side and a bad side. So the good side is, is, is all this wonderful food and all these wonderful emotions. But it was intense. It was very intense. You, know, you, you always felt that kind of, uh, I always say the weight of history on your shoulders. People who grow up in Jerusalem often can't wait to leave because it is, it is intense. But they also look back with a lot of fondness because it's something that is really hard to replicate elsewhere. I want to talk more about your family in a bit, but particularly one member of the family, your grandmother, who was a spy. She worked for Mossad. And I I gather she was involved in the capture of the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. Is that right? And and did you know that? I didn't know about it until I was in my teens or my mid-teens, where this family story came to light. my mother didn't know her, her mother, her, my grandmother, was working for the Mossad. She thought she did some official job in the prime minister's office, as it was called at the time, but she didn't know exactly what she was doing. When Eichmann was abducted and delivered to Israel from Argentina, I don't remember the exact year, but it was in the early 60s, my grandmother was involved in this operation from Israel. My mom remembers the morning where Eichmann's arrived and the news came. My grandmother telling to my grandfather, he's here. And she asked, who's here? And they said, oh, you know, that's nothing important, some relative. But my mom made a connection. And then years and years later, the story came out in a book by the head of the retired head of the Mossad. It was confirmed. And then my grandmother had more stories about like, you know, day sojourns in Tehran and all sorts of things she used to do as a, as a young woman working for Mossad. So we were growing up under this kind of the shadow of my very interesting grandmother and her, her stories. Because you have a food story about her, and I wanted to ask in general about your family and food. And I think you have a memory of your grandmother. Was it making coffee and she used to make particular dishes in her home? Tell me about the food that you saw your family enjoy around you. I had two grandmothers that were couldn't be more different from each other. So the one that we, we talked about was my German grandmother, my maternal grandmother. And she was a character, you know, you could love her or hate her, depending on the time of the day. She was so intense. She was very, you know, she was, as you can imagine, a Mossada agent. And her food was very Germanic. You know, we used to go there and we had our lunch on a Saturday afternoon, like a Swiss clock. You know, it was, we, it started at two and it finished at 2.45 and we were out by 3.30. And she always used to serve the same food, which I kind of liked. Uh, there was cured ox tongue slices, cauliflower blanched in water and no aromatics with a kind of a buttery breadcrumby sauce <laughs> on top. Uh, she was a good cook, but very much in the Germanic tradition of cooking. 
My other grandmother never worked. She was more of an introvert, but her food was incredible. All my memories of Italian food are kind of, I latch on to, to her. So she used to make these incredible semolina gnocchis, uh, like little uh, semolina dumplings that are really, really thin. And then you put them in the oven with a bit of cheese and a bit more butter and they get this crust. It is pretty magical. She, she did those and then she used to make antipasti like courgettes fried and then marinated with some herbs and vinegar, like very simple, beautifully done Italian food. And you really so, loved this food, didn't you? Your father had a word for you. Did you call you golozzo, meaning greedy yeah, one did, in did. Italian? Yeah, yeah. I was the butt of many jokes in our house, which is about my appetite. I had it in me from a very young age. I was a golozzo. I couldn't stop eating. And, and my dad and my mum were very good cooks. As I said, from very different traditions. But the, beauty, the beautiful thing about growing up in Jerusalem at the time that I did was that, uh, on, you know, I've, so I've had that kind of European tradition at home, but as soon as you left the house, there was all this incredible other influences, the Middle Eastern influences, and particularly the Palestinian influence. We used to go a lot to East Jerusalem at the time, uh, go to the local bakery and buy fresh pita bread. We used to go and buy all the mamuls and the Palestinian cakes. We used to go and have takeaway hummus and labneh. And for me, my love of food was actually formed in the streets of Jerusalem where the market with the spices and those incredible dishes that, that really stay with, stayed with me until now and I think shaped the way I, I experience food. Absolutely, we'll come back to that. But the other thing that I hadn't realised, I think I read it in your Jerusalem book, your home wasn't kosher, you used to eat pork. And I know that, yeah. I mean, I come from a Muslim heritage, even among non-observant Jews and Muslims, that's quite a taboo to bust. I wonder what impact that had on your whole attitude to food and indeed to conformity. So the, the funny thing is, I mean, Jews in Israel are less traditional and less law-abiding in terms of Judaism than the ones that live in the diaspora and other countries. So there, you will find a big chunk of Israeli population that wouldn't follow kosher rules. And pork is a bit of a taboo that is more difficult to cross. But my mother comes from a very assimilated German family and they could just not give up their ham. You know, it was just it was just too deeply ingrained. So she corrupted my dad. And I have to say that it was a kind of a taboo growing up. There was only one one butcher in West Jerusalem that would sell pork under the counter to my mom in brown bags and she would bring it home. And for the sandwiches and from home to school, I, I, I really had to declare to, to present it as turkey to my friends. And my mom made me swear that I wouldn't give anywhere a bag of my sandwich just because they most of them wouldn't eat pork. So that was a, a bit of a thing. But we, we did have a very pluralistic house in, in terms of food. And my mom was very, and still is a very adventurous cook. She always looks for the next thing. to a difficult part of your life. You you were conscripted after school to the Israeli Defence Force like uh, many young men. You served in the Intelligence Corps. Your younger brother very tragically died during military service. And I hope you don't mind if I ask how that loss affected the course of your life. It's very hard to break it down. My brother died a very young man in his early 20s. 
And he was a, a very vivacious, very life-loving person. He was much less complicated than I was. He was just literally a, an eager beaver in every possible way. And he also was extremely charismatic. And everybody loved him. He, was, he would become an actor or something very uh, eccentric. And he was just that kind of person that was very easy to connect to. And he was kind of the center of jokes in our house. And he would, he would sing. And he was, just, he was just that kind of person. And when he disappeared from one day to the next, it was as it does when you lose a, a sibling. It was the biggest shock for all of us. And it took my parents in particular, but also myself and my sister, a very long time to come to terms with it. I mean, you never do come to terms, but to learn to live with him without him, if you see what I mean. So his, his presence is always with us. And we kept very close contact with his girlfriend, who's now married and has, has her own children. But we went through a very hard time. And I think one of the reasons that I chose to leave was because it was not too long, a couple of years after my brother had died. And it, it, I just felt it was just perhaps a bit too much for me to to withstand that, all that pressure as, as, you know, as my sister and I were the only ones left. And it was very difficult. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. I'm sure. No, thank you for, for being willing to talk about it. So you went to university, tel- you moved from Tel Aviv to Amsterdam. And I, I wonder if that was all part of you not being afraid to make some bold decisions. Yeah, so I went to university and I studied literature and philosophy, which I was really interested in. I loved it, but I never felt totally fulfilled. I finished my uh, dissertation for my MA degree and I, I worked on it for a very long time, I'd say a couple of years. 
it was a very uh, well-researched doc, you know, document about the development of photography in, from a philosophical perspective. I handed it in to, and my, my uh, supervisor was very happy and she wrote me a very good uh, report. And I think nobody read it apart from her. <laughs> I, I literally think that nobody read this, this, uh, this book that I've written. I did find throughout my academic studies that the one problem that I did have is that there was, the audience was very narrow. You know, the people that I was talking to, my cohorts, the people that were engaged in conversations about the subject that we found incredibly important was a very small group. And I always compare it to the first time when I served my own dessert that I own, uh, invented in a restaurant. At the end of the service, I had a few left, so I sent them up the lift to the service staff. And they got this brownie that I made. It was a bit more than a brownie, but anyway, uh, and they tried it and they all shouted down the, the shaft. They said, oh, that was the best brownie we've ever had. And that reaction from, from a crowd, as opposed to the non-reaction that I always got to, to the work that I did academically, was so significant for me. That kind of sense of pleasure from having getting recognition is something that really stayed with me. And I think that pushed me onwards in, in the world of food, even though it wasn't always easy. And, you know, you're being modest. You were on a, a genius programme as um, an <laughs> academic. You were all set to go to Yale to pursue an academic career when clearly you had this sense of a different calling and you went to study at the Cordon Bleu School in London instead. And this is um, the uh, the 90s, so I'm guessing you're, you know, you're 29, 30. It's a point in your life when people often think you have to stick with what you've chosen. I'm fascinated with what that experience was like. When I went to the Cordon Bleu, I started working in various restaurants and the ethos was that you really need to work in the very best restaurants if you want to get ahead in, in the world of food. So I've immediately landed as an assistant to the pastry chef in a, in a Michelin star restaurant in Knightsbridge called The Capital. So I worked in the evenings while studying during the day and I, I, I loved it. But as soon as I had to work full time when I, when I st finished my studies after about six or eight months, I found it incredibly hard. The hours were insane. Like I, I, I think I started often. I started nine or ten o'clock and and not be home before one or two o'clock in the morning the that day, and then working the same double shift the next day. And I went through a bit of a crisis because I thought I'm doing what I'm lo I'm supposed to be loving. You know, I've always loved cooking and eating, as you've established my golazzo title <laughs> but I but I never I never I never wanted that that was not what I wanted that was really hard it was it was it, not only so much for in terms of physically but also for my morale it was uh, doing the same thing all over again every day and and getting very little uh, satisfaction from it and I left that environment quite quickly and I, I was very lucky because I was taken to work at Kensington Place which was a great restaurant I started to see different environments. You know, working for in, in these places was not necessarily a way to get forward or get ahead, but actually it was about just giving a really good time to customers and creating fantastic food of, of great traditions. And I think Roly Lee, the head chef there, was someone that I really looked up to because he, he always used to say, you know, just, just make it the best you can and the, the food that you really want to eat. And I realized at that point, that it's, it's, it's the food that I want to eat that I want to cook and not the food that I think other people want to eat. And that was a, a revelation. And, and that actually was a, a way that I've, I, the way I'm still, I'm, I still think about the food that I cook and serve in my restaurants. It's, it's never this kind of platonic idea of what food should be. 
it's much more about what I really deep down inside in my most golotso self actually want to eat. <laughs> Excellent. So this point when you're working in these restaurants, this is when you meet Sammy Tamimi, who is your long-term collaborator. And he, of course, growing up in a Palestinian family, had grown up in Jerusalem around the same time as yourself. Did it feel like destiny when you met in London? <laughs> it did feel a little bit like destiny. So when I met Sammy, I worked, I became a kind of a certified pastry chef. And there was a small takeaway cafe in Delhi in, in Knightsbridge called Baker and Spice. And Sammy was running the kitchen there, making the most incredible food. And I applied for a job as a, head chef, as a pastry chef. And I remember I walked in and the manager was not really there. Uh, and so Sammy was the only person that I could talk to. And I said to him, look, I'm, I want to I wanna hand in my CV because this place looks amazing. and I'd love to work here. And Sammy said, ah, I don't know, the manager not here. I'll, I'll pass it on. But uh, would you like a cup of coffee? And he took a break and we sat down. We have a coffee. And we spoke for like five, ten minutes about just where do you live? What do you do, etc. Before we realized that we could actually speak Hebrew to each other because Sammy speaks fluent Hebrew and that we grew up within three kilometers distance from each other when we were born in the same year. And it was just, it was providence. It felt a bit like that because that the stories, the parallels were so incredibly clear. As soon as we met each other, we were also both gay and we were living with our boyfriends. It was, it was kind of insane how similar we were and how unbelievable it was that we have actually never met up until that moment. And the first deli, uh, the first deli that you opened together then, 2002, uh, Notting Hill in London, you on the pastries, uh, Sammy on savoury. You described the effect of walking into that shop. And I, I know anyone who's walked into an Ottolenghi store, the Jerusalem souk effect. Can you describe what it is and what was the experience you were creating? Because it refer refers back to your childhood, doesn't it, in a way? In hindsight, I realize it does. I remember we were setting the counter and the Ottolenghi counter is quite famous for how luxurious it is and how bold and how colorful it is. And Sammy was putting his salads beautifully presented in with heights. You know, when you go to the market, there's always a really good stall holder know, knows how to create height because that's how you create that kind of sense of abundance. And you also fill up the field of vision because that's what you want. You want the buyer to see nothing else but this fantastic food. Sammy did that with his salad and I did that with my cakes. And afterwards, someone says to us, you know, it looks like a marketplace. It looks like the souk in Jerusalem or, or, or in Istanbul or, or in some kind of Spanish market. And it, it did. As soon as we looked at it, we said, actually, that's what we created. But I think we did it subconsciously. We didn't quite realize that that's the effect that we were, we were after. Fantastic. You're hugely popular in Britain. The Guardian food column has been running for years. The books, I always notice they're, they're on the bestseller list for months and months. But I ask, what about in the Middle East? What sort of reception is your cooking and your attitude to cooking got there? Sammy and I always say we're way more famous all over the world apart from the Middle East. We are kind of non-events there, which is a funny thing because the first book we ever published, the Otolenghi cookbook, was published in Hebrew and got a Hebrew translation, never got an Arabic translation. I think it is perhaps almost too difficult to stomach this partnership in the Middle East. That could be one explanation. And the other is that I don't know that necessarily in the Middle East people want to be taught by someone who is kind of left so, so very long ago how to cook the regional food of, of, of the moment. So they never took off as much as, as we did in other parts of the world. But I have to say that Sammy, um, together with uh, one of my other colleagues, Tara Wigley, has just published a Palestinian cookbook 
called Palestine, which is the Arabic word for Palestine. And it's the most incredible cookbook because it tells the story not only of the food, which is remarkable, Palestinian food is, I think, one of the best in the world, but also of the people and their stories and their plight and the whole business of, of living in Palestine and cooking and being so upbeat despite all the, the challenges. This might be a way to the, to the Middle Eastern market because it, it maybe is a bit less controversial because it's not written by both of us, but it's written by him. But it's also a great, a great book and a great collection of stories. It's sad to hear you say that in a way you feel the Middle East finds it difficult to separate politics from food, that essentially the idea of an Israeli and a Palestinian chef together is, is a controversy in itself. That, that is what you're saying. Yes, I think I, I, I have no doubt about that. I think one of the reasons why our uh, partnership has lasted as long as it did is because in London, we don't really face the same challenges, daily pressures and challenges that we would have had we lived in the Middle East. I mean, it's just the reality. And it is a sad reality. And we have to we, we think about it quite a lot that you see very few collaborations of that nature in Jerusalem. And you'd see more of them outside Jerusalem, unfortunately. There's also great stuff in uh, your Jerusalem cookbook about the kind of wars over whose baba ganoush is the real baba ganoush. And I don't even want to say the word hummus because clearly it's a very, <laughs> very sensitive issue. But how much of that is just fun and how, far, how much of it do people get really angry about? Okay, well, <laughs> that's, a, that's a sensitive question in its, on its own because it's fun for one is not fun for someone else, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's, a very difficult, it's a very subjective thing. You could have uh, hummus arguments that are really fun because it's all about, you know, that one upmanship between restaurants over who makes the bus hummus. It's a real delight to behold because, you know, those are just those are things that could happen in every household. Who makes the best, best cakes, who makes the best stew, anything else. When it's devoid of a political and social context, then it's real fun. The difficulty is, and I've, I've been asked a lot about this question in the, in, the, in the context of cultural appropriation, is that there is the story to tell, right? It's the story of homos, it's the story of the cuisine of a particular nation or another nation. And a lot is at stake in the Middle East. It's not just food. Normally it's livelihood, it's land, it's, it's property. The story of the food is often interwoven into the other stories. So it's very hard to separate and it's always, not always desirable to separate. I'm trying to talk about it in a kind of a general concept, but it is, it's often quite heartbreaking to, to see that it's our food and then it's not their food and vice versa. And, and the answers are never simple. They're really never simple because it's not only Palestinian food, the food of the Middle East has also been the food of Jews who who had lived in the in the Middle East and then immigrated to Israel and brought it with them. So there is never a clear cut answer. Well, you have this global audience. You've got over a million followers on Instagram, and you kind of you you relate recipes through very clear and snappy videos. And there is an art to it. How, how have you found your Insta voice, if I can put it that way? <laughs> I have to say that I was an, a reluctant Insta adopter, but then when I realized how effective it is in, in delivering a message, I, I actually started enjoying it. I think this renaissance of food, especially now in Corona times, is due to the fact that technologically we are presented with so many options in terms of delivering messages. So I, I realized how instantaneous the reaction is when I put in a, a beautiful images on Instagram. It's, 
as a recipe writer who, who's, who sells book, you can only dream of the immediacy of, of an Instagram post. You can put a post a recipe now and, and people will be cooking it for dinner in 25 minutes. It's, it's that instantaneous. And it's very gratifying. There's other sides to it because it's always, it, there's a bit, there's a, sometimes I think there is a too much on Instagram. It's hard to take in. When you sit with a book and you read recipes and you read stories, you actually get much more than the, than the recipes. You get a, a cultural experience that Instagram has no means to, of conveying. But on balance, I think it's a very good thing. And especially now where people are so isolated. talk about in terms of finding your voice is you have come you know spoken out about your your gay identity about uh, parenthood but I was even thinking back to when you came out as a gay man having grown up Israeli how easy was that were you able to come out when you were still living in Israel yes I mean in Israel in the 1990s it was very possible to come out as a gay person but only in a particular in particular places so I lived in central Tel Aviv, which is the cosmopolitan city, uh, the secular city, the I don't care city of Israel, uh, while the rest of the country takes quite a while to follow. This is probably the main reason why I left Jerusalem, because Jerusalem doesn't have that quality, quite the opposite. Tel Aviv was very open and very embracing. I've never exper experienced blatant homophobia in, in, in Tel Aviv in all the years that I was living with a boyfriend. I think one of the things that I've talked about quite a lot when Carl, my husband, and I had our, our first child, Max, was about a kind of conquering bits of gay experiences we were scared to, to take over. I mean, gay parenting was something that wasn't really talked about that much before, or the challenges of gay parenting. I thought, okay, well, and I've written about it in a piece that I've written for The Guardian. I said, okay, I'm an out gay man, but there's certain places where I don't go. You know, I, I don't always necessarily present myself in every context as a gay man. I wasn't so keen to tell people that I'm having a son with my husband. I mean, I told my close friends, but I wasn't out, out with it. And I think it's, a, it's the experience that of maybe my generation, people who were out, but not in every sense of the word. And, uh, and like capturing that little segment of being gay and uh, little segments of being gay was something that uh, people of my generation experiences, experienced and maybe now that's not even necessary anymore. You know, what was striking about that piece is, you know, your honesty in a sense of you wanted to help other people who might feel, is this something I can talk about? And so the one issue that goes with it, and I know you'll have been asked this before, is you'll know that there is a lot of unease, including among gay people, about the role of the surrogacy industry for gay couples who want to have children. The concern that poorer women's bodies can be exploited. How do you answer that ethical concern? I totally know it. And it's something that uh, Carl and I had talked about a lot, because when I describe our, our journey to parent, parenthood, we have tried to co-parent with women, so not to go down the surrogacy route. And that didn't work out for us. The two attempts that we've had to parent with, other, with women didn't work out. And then we chose a surrogate. It's a highly complicated subject. I think one of the reasons why I felt that I could I could defend or uh, my, our experience was that, 
and we had to go to America for surrogacy. And in the states in America that allow surrogacy, the rules and laws that under which this operates are very strict. So women who are surrogates should be quite well established. They should have children of their own and families and be in a, in a particular financial place that does not they, you don't, they're not forced into it for also for all the wrong reasons. Uh, and there is a very long screening process that involves social workers and, and, and healthcare workers that go and make sure and establish that everybody's there for the right reason. But it costs a lot of money. Not everybody can afford it. And so, they, so I know these things happen in completely different conditions in other parts of the world. And I think this is something that really needs addressing. And one of the things that I always say is a reason where surrogacy happens in a less than desirable situations in other parts of the world is because we haven't dealt with it here. The legal framework for surrogacy in the UK and in other European countries hasn't been set in a, in a satisfying way. Because I think if, it would, if we would deal with it and the legislation would be in how it should be done here, we wouldn't have to go to other countries and, and have that kind of degree of exploitation that happens on occasion when, when this is not done properly. Thank you. Now, we're speaking via webcam in a time of lockdown, and you'll know how many of us have found real solace in cooking. But equally, it's been fair to say it's been really stressful for many people too, you know, with cooking becoming this additional burden. I think it's very particularly for a lot of women on top of homeschooling and working and caring for other relatives. Has cooking changed its meaning for you during lockdown? I have to say that it really has, because Carl and I were uh, under lockdown with our two sons, with Max and Flynn, who are seven years old and four years old. We worked so hard. I don't think I've ever worked as hard in my life before, just doing the housework and the cooking and the educating. And and it felt so, in a way, novel, I'm saying it, because it's so many, so many people's experiences every day, to really be in charge of everything, everything that goes on in the house. And we're so used to be kind of in charge, being in charge of a slice. You know, you go to work, you earn the money and you do this. But it was sobering to do everything. And it was incredible hard work. I mean, we would start at 6.30 when the kids wake up and not be done before 9 or 10 o'clock to get everything done properly. So totally a new understanding of what it's like to cook for a family. And we actually really enjoyed the process of understanding how we cook. So there was less waste in our house. So something would, would figure in the breakfast that was left over from the previous night's dinner. We really take care of making sure that we cook three meals a day because it's really important to kind of punctuate the day. Otherwise, you go crazy. So meals are a great signifiers of the time as it happens in the day. And we're loving it, but with a whole new appreciation to what's going on. We made fritters with leftovers, cauliflower from the previous nights. And, you know, Sammy's got this incredible fritters. I mean, anyone who's cooked from the first Otten book might know them, his, his mum's recipe. We take co cooked cauliflower, mix it with a bit of cinnamon, cumin, turmeric, some egg, and fry it, a bit of fr- uh, chopped coriander. It is the most delicious thing in the world. And it is, la- it is actually last, last night dinner recreated in a fritter form. Right, we're going to go to questions now. This is from Lucia Cordron. Good evening, Yotam. It's lovely to hear you speaking with Samira this evening. Which recipes do you recommend for family meals with my daughter aged six and my son aged four? Before I had children, I cooked your recipes endlessly, but haven't cooked them for my children yet. In our house, the kids absolutely love 
tray bakes. If you're cooking meat, you do it with meat. Otherwise, you can do it with vegetables. I cook something big and chunky, like chicken thighs or stewing lamb pieces, and create a sauce from whatever it is that you're cooking. You can do it with a butternut squash as well, and the aromatics. And then once it's almost cooked, I add a little bit extra liquid, a stock or something like that, and then I throw in a starch. It could be rice or it could be bulgur wheat or, or couscous or giant couscous. And I cover it and let it steam and cook in the, in the sauce around the, the, the main thing. And then you've got a meal in a tray, uh, which is less washing up and kids absolutely love it. The starches just absorb all the flavor that the, the main thing has created and it's super easy and delicious. Right, I'm going to put the next two together. They sort of go together. Richard Smith asks, is food political? And I want to ask the second question that I think kind of goes with it, which is uh, Jenin McNaughton. We're lucky in London to have so many choices of different cuisines. Um, Has food in the Middle East um, developed? And do you think fusion cooking dilutes the authenticity of a cuisine? You can see why I've put them together. Yeah, totally. And I'm very much, very happy to embrace those questions. I think Food is political because any human activity is political. Uh, it's political in the sense that a lot of decisions about people's lives and livelihood and, and way of life has to be, have to be made before you get a plate of food on, on your table. So it's political in that sense. And, and the food of the Middle East is, is actually politics in action, like we've, like we've said. You know, I, think, I think food is political when there's something at stake. And I think it's unnecessarily politicized when there is nothing at stake and people are finding it necessary to defend someone else's rights when, when they, can't, they can't even be bothered. So if there is an inequality or a power issue within a certain system, food comes in, then it's very, very important to engage and to say, OK, this is what we, this is all about. We need to redress a certain power imbalance which is absolutely fine. But often I find that food is politicized for no good reason, because in the conversation about cultural appropriation, often the people who defend the oppressed are actually not the oppressed themselves, but some other people and the people that actually are uh, your food you are presenting, they don't really care so much. And I have a really funny uh, story to tell in that context, because my husband Carl is from Northern Ireland, Years ago, I published a recipe in The Guardian for my variation on Irish stew. My mother-in-law always uh, used to make fun of me about my cooking. And I said to her, Greta, you know what? I'll make a really good Irish stew. And because uh, she's thinking, you know, it's so, so fancy. And what's, what's so bad about like an old traditional Irish cooking? And I said, I'll make it, I'll reinvent the Irish stew for you. So I, I created an Irish stew and I added very non-Irish stewy elements. I added a skin of orange and, uh, and a bit of hard herbs and uh, I kind of autolengified it. And I published it in The Guardian and I said, uh, this is my Irish stew. You know, I was, I qualified it as my version of an Irish stew. And I got so many angry comments underneath saying, how dare you, you know, bastardize the traditional recipe by adding, who would have thought adding an orange to an Irish stew and a bit of thyme to an Irish stew? It's uh, Irish stew is really just mutton and carrots. And I said, need I say more? Like, should not, that not be improved on? And, and, and then I noticed the only people who were defending the rights of the, of the Irish uh, were, were English. And no Irish person had any problem with me playing with their with their traditional old recipe, and my mother-in-law especially didn't couldn't care less. She thought it was delicious. So uh, that's a little story about how political it could get. It could get with actually no good reason. 
Thank you so much for telling us how you found your voice. My mouth has been watering almost since your first answer. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hold up. 